This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 13 of Everything Compliance, the Juneteenth edition. The Top Compliance Roundtable podcast is back with a wealth of new topics. In this episode, Matt Kelly opens with a discussion on Uber from the Policies and Procedures Framework, and he rants on the danger of overly legalistic approaches to compliance. Mike Volkoff considers blockchain and how it will impact compliance going forward. Jonathan Armstrong considers the trend of fake news and misinformation around GDPR in the United Kingdom and in Europe. And Jonathan has perhaps the most somber rant of the tenure of everything compliance when he talks about the Grenfell Towers disaster. And finally, Jay Rosen brings forward a detailed discussion of FCPA sabermetrics in the context of the dearth of FCPA cases brought forward under the Trump administration and the Sessions Justice Department. He considers the numbers, the continuing departures of numerous Justice Department career employees and new political appointees as well. Finally, Jay rants on breaking news. The members of the Everything Compliance podcast panel include Jay Rosen, who is the Vice President, Business Development Corporate Monitoring at Affiliated Monitors, Mike Volkoff. Mike is one of the top FCPA commentators and practitioners around. He's the Chief Executive of the Volkoff Law Group. Matt Kelly is the founder and CEO of Radical Compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong is our UK colleague who is an experienced lawyer with Coterie Compliance in London. Matt Kelly, what is on your mind this week? Uh, well, so what is on my mind this week, Tom, and has been on my mind for a while, I have to say, uh, is Uber. Uh, so at the time we are talking here in late June, Uber has just we had its uh, CEO, Travis Kalanick, resign after the Holder report came out. And as many of the listeners there might probably already know, this was Eric Holder hired by Uber. Eric Holder, the former attorney general, hired a few months ago by Uber to diagnose the state of its corporate culture and its many problems uh, after it emerged, I think, in January or February that Uber was plagued with sexual harassment and a very ineffective way to respond to that. And that became just the tip of the iceberg, which then just flipped over in a whole lot more problems that landed right on Uber's board. And we could probably fill the whole hour just diagnosing all of the problems that the Holder Report identified. Um, I, I did a count. This report, which everybody should read, it's fascinating stuff for ethics and compliance officers. You know, 4,700 words, 10 major areas of concern from pay practices to board governance to internal control to diversity. Um, and then the Holder Report gave out, I think, about 46 different recommendations on how Uber could improve itself. Uh, including my favorite is that it should have a policy about how to use or not use controlled substances at work and at workplace functions. <laughs> so if people need an anti-cocaine policy, uh, I think maybe you could look to Uber and see what sort of problems they had with controlled substances and you know how they could solve it. But the, just to give you a sense of the scope of what was wrong there. And I think at last count, Uber had at least half a dozen senior executives leaving this spring, not just the CEO, Travis Kalanick, but the CFO, the general counsel, the president for ride sharing, who was hired last year, resigned less than 12 months later, 
specifically saying the culture of Uber is not what he signed up for. So he was leaving. Um, I don't even know who is running the company anymore. I know it's some faceless board or internal committee of, I think, 13 senior executives who are reporting to the board who had somebody resign because he made a sexist joke while the board was having a public meeting about sexual harassment problems. Not good. Um, so there are two big things ethics and compliance officers, I think, could take away from the Holder Report. First off, whatever specific problem you have at your company, read the Holder Report because Uber had it too. I don't care what your problem was. It's in there in the Holder Report. Uber's mishandling of corporate culture and governance and internal controls spans the waterfront. So you could certainly dive into your specific issue and see what Uber's issue was and, huh, how are they solving it? And what's this recommendation? Could that work for me? That's definitely an exercise worth your time if you are an ethics and compliance officer. But more broadly, uh, I was trying to figure out what is the, the real through line of the Holder Report about Uber. And I think it comes down to a, a, a need for policy management. Uber very clearly had this improvisational ad hoc approach to managing itself, largely dependent on the outsized influence of a few very swashbuckling, larger than life type of figures within the company. First and foremost, CEO Travis Kalanick. And the, the way I've expressed it is that the tone at the top from him was so loud, it drowned out all other sorts of input from other parts of the company, such as people complaining about sexual harassment, which they did. Um, and you know, nothing came of it because this was not the culture that Kalanick was pushing through. Good policy management is about, I would argue, sort of depersonalizing the influence of these larger than life figures who may or may not have a good sense about them of when they should check themselves and base the company on more universal core values. That's really what went wrong here at Uber. And policy management is about adopting strong practices to support a couple of clear objectives that are set by certainly the CEO. I'm in favor of a strong CEO who really does abide by good core values. But you know, once you have the core values, and set objectives around them, and set policies to achieve those objectives. If you do this well, those policies and procedures are strong enough that when some swashbuckling jackass comes in and tries to subvert what you want, it won't work because the policies are that strong, because the procedures are that strong, because you have a good policy management system. And that is not what happened at Uber. So, I mean, my, my clear takeaway with all of this and why I'm going on and on about Uber and policy management is because we all know when corporate compliance officers go to the board or go to business executives out in the operating units to say, we need to do this, they're all going to look at you and say, well, why are we doing all this? What's the point of it again? What is good policy management about? It is about not going down this slippery slope or not falling into these bad habits or whatever metaphor you want to use to describe what happened at Uber. It's about making sure that doesn't happen, that these overweening influences pull the company away from what are good core values to what are very effective procedures to get something done. But if your values are wrong, you are very effectively getting bad stuff done. And that's that's really what happened at Uber. So I, I think it's an excellent report, well worth everybody's time. But just consider 
the bigger framework that would have prevented all of these problems, that's good policy management. And that's the argument you can then take to your board and your other C-level executives about this is why we really do have to invest in this. I don't care if you use a special software tool or SharePoint or a bulletin board or whatever it is you're going to do to manage policy. The fact is you do need to do it. And the technology is there to do it. But you know, I'll leave that for a different day. But that that really has been on my mind. I think Uber is probably going to be the gift that keeps on giving for ethics and compliance of 2017, much the same that Wells Fargo's troubles last year were the gift for 2016. Endless lessons that we can learn from Uber, but that's what's on my mind. So Matt, the um, one of the questions I've been mulling around is uh, when you have a startup company that is either successful or even wildly successful, at what point is the time to put in these types of policies? Uh, obviously, when you're 10, 15, 20 people, it's, it's certainly one thing. When you move to hundreds, it's another. But when you're in the thousands, I think you've passed the time uh, to put the, ba- the backbone of compliance and ethics into your organization. Any real thoughts on, on an appropriate time to, if not put it in, consider it? Um, you know, it's a very good question. And I agree with you that when you're at the thousands and thousands, you've probably missed the train. But when you're still moving from dozens to hundreds, is that when you put it in? Now, the, the, the true answer is you and I don't know. There is no universal answer. It's going to be on a case-by-case basis, depending on if you do have a CEO who is more brash and swashbuckling as opposed to one who's more methodical and aware of what's going on. And a lot of it is going to depend on the board stepping in to say, now's the time. And getting back to startups, remember who typically is on the board at startups. It is founders, the founder's friend who kicked in some cash when it was still running out of the spare bedroom, and maybe some venture capitalists. Very different than who's on the board at a larger company where they are typically other CEOs or experts who don't have that same sort of I got in early, I got to make sure that grow, grow, grow. Um, At a public company, at larger companies, these boards are much more about how do we keep this ship sailing quarter after quarter after quarter. And it's not the same sort of grow, grow, grow focus that startup boards have. Now, I I don't know how you're necessarily going to get around that because I haven't met too many venture capitalists or private equity people who who love good corporate conduct more than they love grow, grow, grow. They're out there, I'm sure, but you know, it's a tough conversation to have. And that's, there is no easy answer, but I think that's some of the tension that gets to how does this happen? That, that's how it gets to happen. Mike Volkoff, you've been thinking and writing about blockchain. What do you have for us on that today? Well, Tom, thanks uh, for the opportunity to, to discuss blockchain. You and I uh, had some offline discussions about it. Um, one of the things that I have been really uh, fascinated with uh, is new technologies uh, for compliance. And I say that because, uh, and I wrote about it, I think this week, this past week, there was a recent Ethisphere conversant survey uh, that showed that a large proportion of chief compliance officer and compliance departments are still using spreadsheets. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. Excel spreadsheets where they handwrite uh, entries and maintain records in spreadsheets. Uh, and this, and I thought we were, you know, moving past this. And this gets to another issue with me, which is, you know, uh, it's one thing to get people 
uh, for resources that chief compliance officers have to fight for, but they also need uh, the technologies that are needed to audit, monitor uh, activities uh, within the company. So um, I happened to be at a uh, conference uh, that uh, you were so nice to introduce me to the people there and uh, a conference in, uh, in Singapore uh, where IBM representatives put on a presentation about blockchain uh, and I just was really taken by it. I, I never got into the sort of Bitcoin issue and how Bitcoin works with what is called, you know, a distributed ledger technology. And this, uh, I really think that blockchain is, is something, now it's not the magic bullet at this point. There's still a few kinks being worked out, but the potential here is just uh, incredible. So, what and in its basic form, imagine uh, even let's start within the company. Uh, a, le a distributed ledger is basically uh, the ability to make um, digitally protected entries. Uh, and I'm trying to simplify this, uh, at least in my mind. Uh, uh, entries that are literally uh, placed in a chain uh, and then uh, new ones are added to that. And it's a ledger that basically contains the whole history through a chain of entries. Now, the, the tricky and interesting part about it is you define the environment as to who should have access to this ledger. So let's start with the simplest example to me is within a company. So if you wanted to, for example, monitor or keep track of certain activities, you could then um, create an environment in which different functions within the company would have access to this ledger and be able to um, add to add to it with certain entries. And it's literally like a block that you add to a long, long um, uh, sort of ledger that keeps going and going and going. It shares data. It shares transaction records. It shares the, you know, the, the, the attributes of the transactions, and it keeps uh, credentials and any other piece of information. It's digitally protected. It's encrypted uh, in a way that uh, prevents sort of hacking uh, although there was, uh, there are some sort of kinks still being worked out in that area. But then when you think, uh, and so basically the blockchain and the transactions are recorded, like I said, chronologically. And, and I, I know this is a tough word for me to say, but it's immutable, immutable, meaning it can't be changed. If you had an entry that you put in and it turns out it was, incorrect in some ways, the way you correct it is not going back to that entry and changing it, but adding another block, which go, refers back to that entry and then uh, corrects it. So a ledger is then shared. It's immutable. It's encrypted. It's secure in the sense of only certain people are allowed uh, to enter, to access to it. But it also sets up incredible opportunities uh, for compliance functions, supply chain functions. I mean, there's so many applications that can occur in this. Now, 
that's within the one company. But imagine all the interactions that a company has with outside providers. So, for example, uh, we have banking relationships where we engage in banking transactions. Uh, we have an environment in which there are suppliers and uh, distributors, and we have um, a supply chain that and logistics companies. Um, so you can create a shared ledger for certain purposes with certain entities on the outside that, again, shares all of that. So instead of, for example, the paper type of transactions of sending an invoice, uh, paying an invoice, whatever, we start to create an environment in which there's an immutable record of transactions, which we have a shared ledger with, and there's limited access based upon you know need or whatever for certain outside functions. It creates incredible possibilities. And the, the IBM put on an incredible show about a supply chain which consisted of taking fish, you know, fishing company and ultimately delivering the fish to a particular uh, entity in which they were able to take the, sh the fish from the river, then uh, tag it, keep track of it, and they would know exactly where each of the fish that was taken, uh, who it ultimately was distributed to or delivered to, and then keeping track of all the transactions along the way. Logistics company, truck picks it up, moves it to uh, a customer, Every part of this was kept on this ledger, and um, it, it, it is so incredibly um, efficient uh, in my mind that um, it really uh, sets up incredible opportunities. Now, there's another part to this, which I think is uh, the part uh, they have sort of a contract rules part where you can set up certain relationships with standard contracting, standard or rules for certain transactions in which then if a transaction doesn't follow a certain rule, uh, there would be an automatic uh, identification or notification to you. So for example, say there's uh, you have contract rules for how you uh, interact with a particular distributor. And a distributor violates uh, the rule or a transaction violates the rule, you would then be notified. So let's say um, there's a charge in there that shouldn't be included, uh, and you have rules as to that that are set up in advance, and all of a sudden you're getting a fee from a distributor that you've never seen or uh, shouldn't be paid. You would receive a red flag notice immediately upon the violation of that contract rule. And think about the implications for that. In other words, compliance monitoring and compliance notifications would be almost real time and it wouldn't depend upon you conducting then an audit and discovering something that was not uh, or that somebody has to see the invoice and say, oh my gosh, uh, this does, I can't explain this charge. You don't have to depend upon the human review and human scrutiny. You, in that case, uh, you would have rules that are set up and you would receive a notification of that. Uh, it also, so to me, 
that is revolutionary in the sense of real-time monitoring. In a sense, you're creating red flag rules for potential risks that you would then have to pursue. So think um, the, the real area where this is, I mean, probably the most interested industry in this is, for obvious reasons, is the finance industry, but it has applications that go across everything and uh, in any industry. So um, the other thing about it is because it creates an immutable record of all transactions, auditing becomes uh, an incredibly, I wouldn't say easy, but it becomes much more effective and efficient. Um, You know, sampling becomes less needed because you really already have all the transactions in the ledger and you have rules set up for the ledger and you've already received notices about this. And maybe it requires digging, going back and digging into some transactions, but everything is clear there. You can't like scribble out and erase the record and then come back to it and then try to, uh, you know, do something, change a record or in any way cover up uh, what was going on. So, for example, say uh, I spent, you know, a million, you know, uh, $100,000 on gifts like the world tour case and the FCPA case where uh, the salespeople took these guys and bought them Rolex watches and whatnot. And I have to put this in on the shared ledger. Obviously, my rules are going to uh, be tripped if I try to put this entry in. Uh, if I try to cover it up, um, there may be uh, questions as to my ability to make certain entries uh, and categories of entries to try to cover it up. So, or thresholds of even amounts. And in that circumstance, they would have been caught red-handed. You wouldn't have this back and forth, back and forth, where they were trying to change their invoices and they were eventually caught or their reimbursement requests, but they were eventually caught. But think about the real-time aspect of this. So I, I was, uh, I was fascinated by this time. I know you're, a, you, you're intrigued by it as well. And I think that um, this is something that could uh, be very, very effective for companies in terms of monitoring not only their third parties, but obviously your own sales staff and other people like that. Okay, perfect. Jonathan Armstrong, you have written about uh, one of the most beloved topics of the current U.S. political scene, fake news. But you write about it from the English and European perspective. What, uh, what does fake news mean for the compliance practitioner? Well, I think the particular sort of sphere of fake news that we're seeing a lot of really is around GDPR, Europe's new general data protection regulation. And I was at uh, InfoSec a week or so ago. So that's the major conference, obviously, in the information security industry. And north of 50% of the vendors were trying to sell their product as a, you know, almost like a GDPR panacea rather than do compliance properly, take these uh, magic beans and your trouble will go away. And some of the vendors have had, you know, for example, one of them, I'm not suggesting that they were involved in this magic bean selling, but one of the vendors, for example, had a GDPR bus parked on the pavement outside of the conference. So, So it seems to me that this is the sort of 
flavour of the month. And, uh, but we're also seeing some really quite disturbing elements, if you like. We've put together um, a, a sort of short list of about a dozen of the most popular elements of fake news that we're seeing around GDPR. You could certainly make it 20 or 30 more. And why I think it's, uh, it's concerning is, first of all, of course, some people are being told they don't need to do anything at all. Um, for example, one of the rumors is that um, the new data rules will not apply at all to the health sector. Now, that's pretty damaging, both for, for example, the operators of hospitals, because they think they don't have to do anything about compliance in this space. But secondly, of course, it's also pretty damaging for their patients, isn't it? If, if you're told that because the law doesn't apply to you, you don't have to take care of patient records and so on, then that itself is a recipe for disaster. I think the other um, areas of concern is obviously, I don't know, maybe 20% of our time now is spent with clients where budget's been withdrawn or somebody within the organization said, well, uh, I've been along to an event where they've said, I don't have to do this, so I won't. And then uh, I guess my final worry is just uh, partly self-interest almost from an insurance point of view. You know, I know, uh, you know, whereas specialist law firm in this field, we, we know, I'd like to think we know what we're talking about. More importantly, our insurers have confidence that, that we know what we're talking about. And of course, all of our advice is backed up by an insurance program and that's mandatory in, uh, in, in England and Wales if you're giving, giving legal advice. But it seems to me that all of a sudden we've got an area where you can be a summer intern and dole out advice. Um, and that must be unhelpful, firstly, for clients, but secondly, you know, from a risk point of view, presumably, indemnity insurance premiums are going to go up and we're all going to suffer just because some people are taking uh, advantage by, by per, you know, percolating this fake news throughout the compliance community. Well, Jonathan, are you suggesting that if you or I, in our capacity as legal counselors, um, rendered an opinion or suggested a course of action based upon incorrect facts or uh, what you've termed fake news, that we could be liable for those opinions, uh, not based upon um, negligence in making an incorrect legal decision, but simply because we based our opinions on uh, fake news? I think so. I mean, I think if you're, if you're a, you know, if a client comes to you and says, you know, to use another example, does GDPR apply to the financial services sector? Then it's incumbent on you, isn't it, to, to give the right answer if you're being, particularly if you're being paid money for that advice. And if you, uh, if you get it wrong, I don't think it's any defense to say, well, I read this article. Uh, and I didn't f forensically check the facts of it w were true. And, and I think the difficulty we have is certainly in Europe, there are a relatively small number of uh, specialist compliance lawyers because the topic has never been until now that sexy. And to be honest, there hasn't been as much money in it as there has been in other areas of law. So as a result, you get a lot of people who are, who are new to this game and because they're new to it 
they're also fairly prolific at pushing out information to try and establish their credentials. But the difficulty is, you know, you're new to it and you're writing about it a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're correct. And, and what we're seeing is a lot of people are relying on this information that's, that's already out there. And nobody really knows where the foundation of these false facts were uh, to start with. So to give you another example, there's, there's a rumor going around that we see a number of times that the fines for GDPR are based on 4% of an organization's profit. So we've had organizations say, well, I haven't made a profit, so I'm not going to get fined because it's 4% of profit. But it isn't. The fine is based on 4% of turnover. And, and, if you, uh, and that's obviously a very, very different number for most organizations. But you can't get to where this 4% of profit ever came from. It's never been a feature of earlier drafts of the regulation. I'm guessing what happened is somebody somewhere misread the regulation once upon a time, wrote about it or blogged about it. Other people have picked up that blog. And, you know, the net result is, I don't know, 10% of the articles you see are based on this wholly false premise. The difficulty is, of course, you can't, organizations are planning on the basis of the wrong foundations. You know, if you think, I haven't made a profit, therefore I can't be fined, therefore I'll do nothing. You, you, you're in a very bad spot, I think, if the reality is that you turn over, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the minimum um, it, for small businesses, it's 4% of profit or, or 20 million euros. So your sort of minimum exposure is going to be 20 million euros. So you're starting off with quite a big liability you know, for what? Just on the basis that you've that somebody somewhere has misread an earlier draft of the regulation. Well, and, and I think it, it, it is consequential, you know, back on the election theme, that we know that it's these these sort of small, either deliberate or accidental alternative facts that um, that, that sway people's minds and they and they grow a life of their own. And I think we're seeing that in the compliance field and particularly in the area of GDPR. So, Jonathan, if I could contrast it with uh, the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, which applies to all U.S. companies, uh, but there are two parts to the FCPA. There's a criminal part, which prohibits bribery, and then there's a civil part around uh, accounting provisions, including books and records and internal controls. That second part is only, only applies to U.S. publicly listed companies. And I still get questions uh, as recently as the last within the last six months from along the lines of, well, I'm private. Does the FCPA doesn't apply to me, does it? Mm -hmm. The FCPA mm -hmm. applies to you, but the books and records don't. And so now we've got a 40 year old statute where people are still in, misinterpreting that. So uh, I guess what I'm kind of struggling with is the difference between misinformation and typically when you ask the person where they got that information. They said, well, my accountant told me. I'm like, well, that answers that mm -hmm. question. Um, as opposed to intent, uh, intentionally putting out false information uh, where you can't, as you said, you cannot trace the source of where the initial conclusion came from. Um, so um, I guess 
not to sound completely unsympathetic, but I, I feel like that's the role of a lawyer uh, to kind of uh, unpeel that. And if, and if a statement is made uh, to do enough research to determine, one, it's right or wrong, and two, if it's uh, not so clear that there's shades of gray, you know, perhaps as being good lawyers, we can see and argue uh, two sides to everything, but uh, point out the, the pluses and minuses of both sides. But you, you seem to think that it's, it's a little – is it more nefarious or just more of a problem that you're seeing? I think some of it is definitely wishful thinking. I think some of the bit about, you know, if I'm a vendor of technology services, then have I got a vested interest in saying that vendors of technology services have no liability? Well, I think unscrupulous vendors may have been almost spreading that rumor uh, for their own self-interest. I think a lot of it is, you know, isn't uh, malevolent. It's just ill-informed. But I think the the difficulty uh, with this, I, th- I think you're probably right with uh, the FCPA parallel as well, is is it's just a, a topic that certainly over here everybody's talking about. Uh, and there's obviously a huge impact on U.S. corporations as well because of the extraterritorial uh, provisions of, of, of GDPR. I think I agree with you that it's the job of a good lawyer to sort out the wheat from the chaff. But my worry is that a number of organizations uh, aren't doing anything. They're not even speaking with, uh, with good lawyers because they're just reading almost what they want to believe, that GDPR doesn't apply to them because they'd like it not to apply for them. And this, this sort of you know, consolidates their wish, if you like. But but I but my suspicion is that some are going to get into significant trouble. And I think you know your FCPA article might be on point. I suspect that many of the people who think FC, FCPA doesn't apply to them are those same people who think it's fine to uh, bribe a guy in uh, Indonesia because that helps level the playing field, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're the people who are justifying what they're doing anyway. And, um, you know, I'm morally right in paying bribes plus, and I have no liability at all, is that sort of matching pair that they're after. So, Jonathan, if I could turn the uh, the subject just a little bit, um, the, U- the UK recently had uh, another election. And, uh, Didn't the result- we just... Yes, and uh, <laughs> the uh, the results we uh, we hit it at. I think uh, um, I guess we had not uh, we've not visited since the the election. But um, I was wondering. There's a couple of questions. First of all, uh, I think some of our listeners may not quite understand uh, what Prime Minister May is having to do right now to create a uh, majority uh, number of seats for for her position. And so if you could explain the negotiation she's going through with the DUP, who the DUP are and how all that ties together to allow her to form a government. And then I don't know if at this point you would have any thoughts on what it might mean uh, for the SFO going forward. But if you have some, some thoughts on that, maybe uh, share those as well. Yeah, sure. I, I think the, I, I think the second one is perhaps the easiest to answer. I think there's, Almost no real change in, uh, in in position. You'll remember that the uh, Conservative Party's manifesto commitment was that the SFO would be abolished. I think that probably is still an aim of Theresa May, but she's got, I suppose the term we'd use is bigger fish to fry, I suspect. And at the same time, 
there are, let's just say, rumors around that the uh, SFO is about to trumpet uh, something else that might be interesting and might help uh, help their survival. So I think it's certainly, uh, it remains to be seen w- what happens with the SFO. And of course, we don't really know what the, um, uh, w- what the position is of, of other parties either, n- notably the Labour Party and whether they would get a majority of people uh, opposing any uh, abolition of the of the SFO. Um, so I suppose the, the, the simple answer is too early to say on that. As far as the more general process is concerned, then, as you said, uh, Theresa May managed to turn a um, effectively a majority government into, mi- into a minority government as a show of strength. And um, so she's left with having to negotiate with one or more political parties to try and form a, uh, a majority. And they're uh, trying to go for almost coalition light, if you like. So it's not really a formal coalition in terms of two parties getting together and agreeing a plan of work. It's a, um, it's a sort of crisis-only you know, mutual survival pact uh, where uh, only on significant votes will the DUP join with the government, and, and those votes will be mostly around what's called a confidence vote, so a, a vote that would trigger a re-election. And there's various concerns as to what that means in the longer term for two key areas particularly. The first is that uh, the DUP are uh, perceived as being, uh, I don't know, somewhat anti-libertarian, you might say, in that at least some within the DUP have uh, rather strident views on issues like uh, abortion and same-sex marriage and whether that will alter uh, Conservative Party policy. And the second is over Northern Ireland. So the DUP are a Northern Ireland-only party. They're relatively small with 10, 10 seats. And will it mean that Northern Ireland gets a disproportionate amount of uh, investment in areas like infrastructure to keep these 10 MPs and their constituents sweet? But also, what does it mean for the Northern Ireland peace process? So we're currently in a state of flux in Northern Ireland at the moment because the uh, political process there has collapsed and there, uh, instead of it being devolved, they're being effectively managed by uh, a, a member of the uh, Westminster government, uh, who, who's the Northern Irish Secretary, and uh, and the role of the government is meant to be almost as an honest broker between the Irish political parties, and can the government, UK government, still play honest broker when uh, one of the parties around the negotiating table is supporting that government. And as we speak today, there's some meetings to try and resolve some of those issues. So this is one of those odd podcasts, I think, Tom, that despite the, the quick turnaround time you have on these, this might all be out of date by the time that we, that we get around to, to broadcast. But I think it's a moving feast. 
And I think whatever happens, I think we've seen that there are real issues in trying to form political consensus in the in the UK, and um, and we've had you know a period of almost centrist policies winning with you know the the Blair administration, then going into the Cameron administration, where both parties' political uh, views were broadly similar, and and I think I think we're finding that UK politics has become somewhat more uh, chromatic and polarised at least in the short term, there's certainly clearer water between Theresa May and, and Jeremy Corbyn as the two main leaders. And then I guess just finally, the last uh, thing that's you know moderately interesting is we've had the resignation uh, yesterday as, as we speak of the leader of the third party. They were something of a coming force before they entered into a formal coalition with David Cameron's first government, and uh, they've got back some ground, but where is their position in the in the long term in um, in UK politics as well? Jay Rosen, what's been on your mind? Uh, I have been thinking about FCPA sabermetrics, and in preparation for this week's Everything Compliance podcast. I decided to take a look into the question of why has there been a dearth of recent FCPA resolutions and activity? And I started looking into this last Thursday, June 15th, and this was prior to the recently announced Lind declination. So uh, like any good pundit or prosecutor, I decided to let's run the numbers. So at the DOJ, if we go back to November of 2015, Assistant Attorney General for Criminal Division, Leslie Caldwell, announced that the DOJ was preparing at that time to add 10 new prosecutors to the fraud section's FCPA unit, increasing its size by 50%. So at the time, it was believed that there were about 20 attorneys in the FCPA unit, and so the new total would be about 30, and currently right now, the FCPA unit stands at 31 attorneys. Um, While the Justice Department has in recent years beefed up its FCPA enforcement capacity and directed prosecutors across the country to focus on individual culpability for corporate misconduct when developing cases, prosecutors still face challenges following through. Uh, Individual defendants are often from other countries, and they are more likely to fight charges than companies looking for a quick resolution. One interesting note, this past May, uh, Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Trevor McFadden announced that the U.S. Department of Justice will be sending an anti-corruption prosecutor to work with the United Kingdom's Financial Conduct Authority and the SFO. This two-year secondment will mark the first time that the DOJ's criminal division has sent a prosecutor to work full-time with foreign agencies on regulatory and financial criminal matters. Uh, This move is part of the DOJ's ongoing effort to increase cooperation with foreign prosecutors in combating white-collar crime across the globe. In terms of FBI resources, as of March 2015, the FBI established three dedicated international corruption squads, which we know to be in New York City, 
my hometown of Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. And the FBI International Corruption Squad just recently hired five more special agents. So the DOJ looks like it's staffed with line prosecutors. The FBI is investigating what does the 2018 fiscal budget look like? Through Though the U.S. Department of Justice budget took a small hit in President Trump's 2018 budget request, the criminal division actually saw its budget increase slightly. The overall DOJ request is for $27.7 billion compared with $28.8 billion in 2017, which is less than a 4% decrease. The criminal division will still lose some 88 positions, including 27 attorneys, according to stats released by the DOJ. These prosecutors are already thinly staffed, was observed by Jason Jones, a 10-year federal prosecutor and now partner in King and Spaulding's special matters and government investigations practice in Washington, D.C. He previously served as an assistant chief of the FCPA unit and stated that you typically see that there are one or two federal prosecutors investigating a company that has a much larger team of lawyers. But Jones said he doesn't think these cuts will stop any significant investigation. They may take a little bit longer, and the DOJ may be a little pickier in the cases they choose to pursue. So let's take a look at the backlog now. Public filings suggest that there's been a substantial number of investigations that remain ongoing and unresolved, perhaps as many as 80 DOJ and SEC investigations, and over 100 additional suspected investigations against non-issuers, according to one report. It's safe to say that at least some of these investigations will result in charges, DPAs, NPAs, and formal declinations. As these resolutions unfold, we'll have an opportunity to see whether and to what extent the DOJ's enforcement goals and strategies against companies and individuals continue in the new administration. Let's look at the numbers now between 2008 and 2009, which was when the Bush administration uh, switched over to the Obama administration, and then take a look at 2016 numbers, which we will be comparing against at the end of 2017. Besides the two Magyar telecom executives who paid penalties of 250000 and 150000 and the sole prosecution of Samuel Mibeme in the Oxif matter, there has not been much action on the individual enforcement front. This fact raised the ire of U.S. District Judge Nicholas Garufis, who made waves by criticizing the DOJ for only prosecuting one middleman in the FCPA action involving the New York hedge fund, Oxift, while the rest of the people are off on some golf course. In late 2017, Newmont Mining also disclosed that it received a declination from the SEC. From 2008 to 2009, and the changeover between Bush 43 to the Obama administration, DOJ prosecutions increased by about 30% from 20 to 26 matters, and SEC prosecutions rose by one from 13 to 14. In all of 2016, the Obama administration resolved 21 DOJ and 32 SEC matters. This number does not include the rash of settlements that happened during the month of January, which included Mondelez International, Zimmer Biomet, Rolls-Royce, and 
Orthofex International and Las Vegas Sands. But just as the New England Patriots were down 28 to 3, the DOJ and SEC could surmount a huge comeback in the third and fourth quarters. With regard to the pilot program, Acting Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco announced that the DOJ was extending the pilot program beyond its initial trial period so the DOJ could begin the process of evaluating the utility and efficacy of the program and decide whether to extend it and what revisions, if any, should be made. Compliance professionals should also note that the majority of the DOJ prosecutors are career professionals who remain in place throughout changes to the regime. Thus, any significant changes to operations would take place slowly as personnel leave the DOJ and are replaced. Additionally, any actual or perceived drop in U.S. anti-corruption enforcement could cause other nations to fill the void with more aggressive enforcement of their own. So I guess the only thing that we really want to look at now is if we have enough resources in place, we have investigators, we have money in the budget, maybe there's a drain at the leadership of the DOJ. In January 2017, Trevor McFadden was appointed to serve as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division. Vacancies will, of course, slow the course of effective prosecutions, at least in the short term. President Trump asked most of the sitting U.S. attorneys, all of whom are political appointees, to resign. This practice has been customary since Janet Reno served as the AG under Clinton and dates in more informal form all the way back to the Reagan administration. Although the lack of U.S. attorneys may slow progress of individual investigations, these these attorneys are more worker bees rather than the queen bee, and they don't set overall DOJ policy. So the key issue yet to emerge is what is DOJ's policy with respect to corporate and white-collar prosecutions? So far, the Trump administration has failed to line up replacements. As of April 18th, 93 unfilled U.S. attorney positions are among the hundreds of critical Trump administration jobs that remain open. A.G. Sessions is also without heads of his top units, including civil rights, criminal, and national security. Oh, and the administration is also working on the nomination of Christopher Wray to be the director of the FBI. So let's look at the leadership of the DOJ's fraud section and those who specifically are in charge of the FCPA unit. Daniel Kahn is the chief of the FCPA unit. Pablo Quinones is the chief of strategy, policy, and training unit. Uh, Perkins finished at the department on Friday after signing off on the June 16th declination issued to Lind North America under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Pilot Program. The company agreed to pay $11.2 million in disgorgement and forfeiture to address foreign bribery violations in the Republic of Georgia. Perkins is set to join Kevin Abikoff, his anti-corruption and investigations team at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed in Washington, D.C., in a meeting on Monday, June 19th, U.S. Department of Justice officials in the criminal fraud section asked Wei Chen if she could leave by Friday, which the compliance consultant agreed to do. The decision by the DOJ to ask Chen to leave earlier than September when her contract was due to run is a departure from what the department said publicly a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, the DOJ has since January added two new fraud assistant chiefs in the FCPA unit. David Johnson, who had 
been an assistant chief litigation counsel at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission since 2004, is now assistant chief in the DOJ's FCPA unit. And between 2004 and 2014, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. Christopher Sestaro has been promoted from trial attorney in the DOJ's FCPA unit to assistant chief. Sestaro joined the FCPA unit in 2014 at the first serving in the fraud section's healthcare team. On April 21st of 2017, Trevor McFadden said, we expect cooperating companies to work with us to prioritize internal investigations and to respond to fraud section requests promptly to ensure there are no delays. This is a quote from McFadden. My intent is for FCPA investigations to be measured in months, not years. Well, this might have been wishful thinking, but on June 7th, McFadden was nominated to serve as the federal district judge in the District of Columbia. So after all the numbers and the players changing on my scorecard, I'm not sure I have identified any particular reason for the lack of DOJ or SEC enforcement actions in Q1, and with less than half the month left to go in Q2, I don't see this changing. While it does take time for a new administration to put its policy stamp on the government, it is possible that with many non-Washington members of the transition team, that the hiring of additional DOJ attorneys, as well as replacing the fired U.S. attorneys, may be taking a bit longer. Or possibly the administration may be distracted by other events at the DOJ and FBI. Nonetheless, a half a year is still not a big enough sample size. The administration has been saying all the right things about FCPA enforcement. And if DOJ and SEC want to focus on individual prosecutions, then these are time and labor intensive matters that are not incentivized to settle as quickly as major global corporations. Do you have a rant for us? I certainly do. My rant is about breaking news. While I've had it up to here with fake news, I am also over a certain cable network, cable news network that is constantly trying to tempt me with breaking news, with ads for mesothelioma, ambulance chasers, wonder canes, and every type of big pharma product that can help me with my plaque psoriasis, but may kill me or cause me to be in a state of arousal for over four hours, I've had enough. Let's just have news, plain old-fashioned news. No commentary, no surrogates, no agendas, just information when it happens and when I need to know. That's it. I don't think I'm asking for too much, but then again, I could just hit the remote and shut it off. Or better yet, get my news the old-fashioned way by reading it for free on a website, which again may be faking or breaking just as bad as their cable siblings. Mic drop, I'm out. Jonathan, do you have a rant for us? I think my rant is just, um, yes, I I guess something somewhat heartfelt and slightly off-topic, but we've had, unfortunately, a, a really catastrophic fire in London in the last few days. And I think what that has highlighted almost is the value of compliance. There are various allegations, and and again, it's too early to give evidence on any of this, on uh, issues that possibly went wrong with this particular building and whether shortcuts were taken. There's been a loss of life, which is likely to be uh, increased because there's some very seriously ill people in the hospital. And I think it's already led to the debate as to whether things like 
you know, developers of uh, apartment blocks or people who refurbish can self-regulate themselves. There are allegations that the that the sort of compliance and regulatory function around these type of buildings has been uh, stripped of resources over the years, and that's led to more self-regulation by industry. So I guess my rant is that um, compliance is a thing that we often mourn when we've lost it. And uh, in an ideal world, should we be celebrating compliance more? Because sometimes we see compliance as an end to itself rather than something that, that literally does save lives if we, if we get it right. Well said. So, Matt Kelly, do you have a rant for us uh, this week? I always have a rant, Tom. Um, yes, I do. Uh, so today I want to rant a little bit about the Lindy enforcement action, which came down, I think, the third week of June, um, where the Justice Department declined to prosecute Lindy, which is an overseas chemicals company that stumbled into some FCPA trouble. This is the first FCPA enforcement action we've seen under the Trump administration, which actually, you know, there's not a whole lot of rant about the decision itself. Lindy came clean, obeyed the tenets of the pilot program, and then therefore had to disgorge its profits and pay a few other small um, small amount of dollars, really. That's what we're talking about. It did not get a DPA. It did not get a monitor. It got a declination. Everybody wins. Where my rant is is about the idea that perhaps Lindy didn't need to report this conduct at all, which was done as part of an acquisition that happened 10 years ago and was the statute of limitations applying or not, and a you know, very tenuous uh, grip on Lindy itself that, you know, did it need to report? There are arguments out there that maybe it didn't need to report. I'm going to rant against the idea that you know, the Justice Department is probably never going to find out. They're probably not going to have a case. So therefore, let's not report this. That is a bad idea. That is a bad habit compliance officers should not get into. My rant is that if your view of FCPA compliance is just that, you know, what does the letter of the law say we can get away with? What is the real risk benefit analysis of disclosure? Is it odds are we'd wind up with huge remediation fees and still get a declination? Let's Let's just assume we're going to get a declination and not bother with the remediation or not bother coming clean. Terrible. It ignores the ethics part of ethics and compliance. Um, and I think that's really one big part of why you should disclose is because people see it. People see that you are therefore putting good values over what the letter of the law will get you let you get away with. And that's good. Employees see it, business partners see it, the regulators will see it because you might wind up in front of them in the future. And if they find out you knew about something before and you didn't report it, and now you're in front of them on a different matter and they hear about the first thing that you never came clean on, you're not going to be in a good situation. I just, I'm very hard pressed to see any good upside to not disclosing because the Justice Department probably won't find out about it. I just don't think that's worth it from a legal standpoint. It is certainly not worth it from an ethics and compliance standpoint. If you just believe that compliance is not about ethics, it's just about what the letter of the law will get let you get away with, I guess you're in a coherent moral framework, but you're not in one that I think is based on what ethics and compliance is about. I could probably rant for an hour on this subject. I won't, I promise, but that, that's my been my rant today. It's just about the some of the chatter you hear about the Lindy 
declination, which overall was a good outcome. So Mike Volkoff, do you have a rant for us this week? Well, I do have a rant and I'm sorry to raise a political issue, uh, but, and, and try, and I'm going to try to keep this apolitical. Um, but I, uh, as a former justice department official, as uh, somebody who worked with Rod Rosenstein in the past, um, I am really uh, discouraged in terms of an institution that I thought was, you know, above all sort of attacks uh, and threats. Um, but the latest series of events uh, attacking uh, Rod Rosenstein um, and attacking the Justice Department um, and and what's going over, you know, going on in this whole, you know, controversy. And I'm trying not to be, a, I'm trying to be apolitical in the sense of saying it really is uh, damaging to a great institution that I worked in for many years and believed in uh, for many years. You know, I think of the old, uh, think of some of the great, great things that the Justice Department has done through the years. And, uh, you know, I always think the civil rights movement. I think of other areas where the Justice Department stood as sort of a shining star. And to see its reputation dragged through the mud uh, in this, I know that there are just a lot of really hardworking, good people there who I have a lot of admiration for. And uh, I'm just really sorry to see what's going on. And uh, I mean, I know it'll bounce back. But on the other hand, it's just discouraging as a DOJ employee for many years to, to see this. So that's my rant. And uh, I, I hope the situation will get fixed in some way soon, hopefully. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate if you would rate our podcast it was, as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only roundtable group podcasting in compliance. I hope you will join us again for our next episode. Until then, thanks again for listening. Podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.